TheYeshiva.net Okay, Afrelech and Tainus Esther, a happy Purim, Afrelech and Purim to everybody, and thank you for joining us this morning. Wednesday morning, Erev Purim, God willing, we'll finish the Mimer, at least one level of it. The Mimer we began last week or two weeks ago, Zohar es Hashrasalach that was said on Purim, Tavshin Yud Zayin, was said by the Lubavitch Rebbe on Purim 1957, we're holding Ois Zion, the seventh chapter of the Maimer, which in your source sheets should be on page 161. So if you go to the source sheets, I posted the source sheets in the Zoom chat, in the Zoom on chat, and it's also on the, on the yeshiva.net. You can follow inside 161, the second paragraph, Ois Zion, this is the seventh Chapter of the Maim. I want to begin the class by reading a letter that I received this week on the email, last week, at the, on the, by email, from somebody who's been listening to these classes on this particular Maim, which explores in such depth the theme of Ad Deloyada. Before I read it, I just want to mention that this week, Maybe it's a little commercial. <laughs> this week we had yesterday, Tuesday, our women's class. And the theme was, do we really want people to lose their minds on Purim? How Purim contains the th- secret of dealing with trauma, healing trauma. So I will suggest it because it, it turned into a very, very powerful conversation and discussion and very deep reflections on the ultimate theme of Purim. And uh, how you, you, how Judaism views the meaning of Jewish identity and Jewish history and anti-Semitism. It was a very powerful uh, and meaningful encounter and experience. So if you have a moment, you go, if you have a few moments, go to theyeshiva.net and watch uh, or listen to yesterday's woman's class. Do we really want people on Purim to lose their minds? So we have been learning this Maimer about Adelayada not knowing what it means not to know, the concept of the two cups, the cup of Amalek, the cup of Shabbos, remembering Shabbos, remembering Amalek. Somebody wrote to me uh, an email. This is a person who's obviously extremely, uh, one of our extraordinary students, who's extremely, uh, as you will see, perceptive and uh, it was a very moving letter to receive, and I wanted to share. I wanted to share it. I wanted to share it with you. I'm not reading it mamish verbatim, almost verbatim. Just a few, a few things that I skipped because of privacy. But uh, it's almost, almost, almost verbatim. <clears throat> this is what the person wrote. I was extremely, extremely young when somebody who's close to my family very, very close to my family, a family friend. Uh, She had a son who got seriously ill. And because this person was so close to our family and their child was a close friend of the family, so I spent a lot of time with them and with the child who was ill. I I found myself going to the hospital, going to the pediatric oncology ward, walking those halls with this close family friend, the mother, 
and the father of this boy. I saw and heard things that I don't think I'll ever forget. I was myself a child, barely a teenager. This was a very difficult experience. I couldn't articulate it then, I was too young. But I think that is when I first really started to question God. Not his existence. That I never questions. That, that I never question. But what seemed to me as so challenging how he could sit back and let things happen. It felt desperately unfair. Little innocent children. Babies. It wasn't my first exposure to human suffering. I have read way too many Holocaust books as a child. I heard first-hand accounts from people who lived in my community, people who lived in my neighborhood, some of my own family members, grandmothers, grandfathers, uncles and aunts, and others their age. But I don't think I ever really confronted it, never like this, right in my face, as I watched all these babies in the hospital oncology ward suffering. It felt so purposeless. It felt so cruel to my young, fertile mind. And it was not man-made. I couldn't blame a particular person for bringing on this suffering. This person, really, this experience really challenged me in a very, very deep way. Life moved on. This child made the recovery. I never gave it much thought until something bad would happen in the world to the innocent, to the faithful. And I just could not stomach it. It would trigger all of that internal anxiety. Other people ran to say to Hillam to pray. I have to be honest. I thought to myself, what's the point? Whatever God wants to happen will happen anyway. I didn't believe much in the individual's power of prayer. This concept of thinking good and it will be good, it was just too difficult for me. I had too much, too much pain from my experience. I felt that God did allow a certain randomness and chaos to run amok in our world, and we just could not do much about it. Fast forward quite a few years. I grew up a little bit. I was blessed to be <coughs> in my own home, a beautiful home, and I was preparing for one of the holidays for Pesach with my growing family and my community. Somebody close to me, a friend, called me and tells me there's a new series on Emuna that just came out. Running out of listening material, and I was preparing for Pesach, I was busy, I decided to check it out. I listened to one, and then another, and then another. I think it planted the seed in my mind that there was more to the human experience than my understanding of it. I decided that I need to start learning. Rabbi Jacobson, I started to join your classes from afar, the live streams, and I started to learn. I remember the first time I listened to a mimer. You were teaching this in the morning classes. It was a morning Hasidic class. I saw men sitting around the table, this was before Corona, using terms I couldn't define or understand. I understood almost nothing that was learned, but I was hooked. I felt compelled to listen, even though 
much of it went right over my head and I got nothing. I started slowly. I would ask people questions, people I knew in my life, some great scholars. What does this mean? What does that mean? My husband helped me out. Other people helped me out so kindly and patiently. I felt a little embarrassed. I was so ignorant about subjects I thought I was supposed to be familiar with. But people who helped me out were extremely compassionate and encouraged me. And as time went on, I just knew that I found what my soul was looking for. The more I started to learn, the more I started to understand. But also, the more questions I started to have. Questions I probably always had, but I couldn't articulate. They all came up. Given the incredible opportunity to ask questions at the end of the class, I started to ask questions. The answers I got rocked my world, but more than anything, they humbled me. I suddenly learned that term that you always say, The ultimate understanding is that we should reach a point that we don't understand. The ultimate understanding is to know that I don't know. The ultimate understanding is to know how little we can ever really know and understand because truth is never filtered through the limited vessels of our brain. Every time I come back to the study of these classes, to the study of Chassidus, I'm reminded of what I am slowly starting to get, that in the end, it's all God, all of it. Ein Eid Malvade, me, you, us, life's blessings and challenges what I lived and witnessed in the past, what I experienced today. None of it is a mistake. None of it is random. In everything, truth can be found. The divine presence can be found. Today, the world spins and shakes. War in Ukraine. I have to say that I feel a sense of calm that is very, very new to me, completely unfamiliar to me. I'm supposed to be nervous, anxious, but there's a deep calm in me. Not that I don't see or hear or understand what's at stake, Not that I'm indifferent or apathetic to the suffering. I definitely get it. My brain is still doing its thing. My brain is still very anxious. It's just that I also know a little more about reality. I also know a little more about infinity. I also know a little more about humility. I also know a little more about godliness. I also know a little more about truth. Or, as my teacher says, God is reality. Reality is God. I finally understand in a very real way that reality is so much more than my eyes can see, deeper than my eyes can go to, that deeper than my mind can go to, and endlessly further than I could never, than I can ever even imagine. It's okay not to understand. It's okay to feel. It's also okay not to fear. Fear is my go-to place, but it's okay not to fear. Hashem is still here despite the hiddenness, despite the darkness, despite the chaos. Purim is coming and then Pesach. Suddenly I'm living with their messages. I find myself reaching for a siddur, its words comforting me. Wow, my soul is divine. Adoin Oilam, Az Yashir, Altira, they all take on new meaning. And I yearn, I yearn for the time when our experience and God's reality will be one, when all pain will cease and when goodness will be experienced like the sun on my face on a gorgeous summer day. May it already be. Amen. Wow. Thank you so, so much for sharing this very, very deeply. And uh, it's extremely moving. So let's go right from here into our class.
I have to say somebody else phoned me yesterday. This was an email message, but somebody else phoned me today because he's celebrating seven years of sobriety. He has been an SA, uh, a serious addict who has wreaked a lot of havoc on his life. And he went into recovery, and yesterday he celebrated seven years of absolute sobriety. And since I was involved with his journey in the be- from the beginning, he called me, I wished him a big mazel tov, and he told me that this mimer that we're learning now is the best gift that he could have really got for his seven years of recovery. I said, why is it the best gift? He said, because it just tells me the story of my life. And it tells me the story of life. And it also tells me the trap that I can get into now by going into a cup, by going into a kais. He says, that's the trap. He says, it's all about Adela Yada. It's all about, he says, I defined myself for myself. He says, the question in life I had to ask myself was, will I be a kais or will I be a conduit? A kais contains truth and needs to mold it and craft it. You decide what your life is supposed to look like and what you're supposed to look like and how people expect you to appear to them so that they should be able to be comfortable with you so you'll be able to feel comfortable with yourself because they think that you (laughs) are fitting into them and they're comfortable with you. He says, and all these definitions and expectations of yourself and God and your family and what life has to look like, he says, instead of just, and then he says, I get so, I got so stuck in that. Instead of opening myself up to Adalayad, I just don't know. I'm a conduit. I'm a conduit for infinity flowing through all my emotions, the good and the bad and the ugly and flowing through my brain and flowing through my heart and just being a conduit for that truth, for that authenticity without manipulating it. So he says, so this Mimer is all about my recovery. He says, forgive me, but it's all recovery material. I'm like, go, go right ahead. I like when people apply it and integrate it into their lives. It's not, uh, he said, am I allowed to say that it's all recovery? I said, you're allowed to say that it's all recovery because that's how it's affecting your life. And it's manifested itself in many different ways. But then he added and he said, but what I learned about Shabbos and Amalek taught me something else. And that is even in recovery, I could get stuck in my case. Even Shabbos, which is so holy, which is all about Tainug, Tainug Hamurkev but I could still go into that kos, that self-contained, holy, spiritual smugness without the Adelayada, without the Bittl B'Metziyas, without being a channel, a conduit. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Jewish people. And therefore he said, remember that Amalek creeps in, even to those places where there's Shabbos, because it's still not Tainug HaPashat, it's still Tainug HaMurkav, as we explained in the previous classes. And we explained last time the lesson that the Rebbe speaks about the need to integrate, the need to connect, the need for Jews who find themselves in a space of Shabbos not to disassociate and disengage from others who find themselves in a space of Amalek. Not only because we are all connected, that's also true, but even deeper than that, because what happens is we ourselves need to realize that we are vulnerable. Even those of us who are in that cup of Shabbos are extremely vulnerable. We ourselves should not feel superior and holier than thou on any level, but the, cons- the consciousness of humility and deep understanding of everybody's brokenness and everybody's struggles allows people to connect and be there for each other and help others extract their spark. 
from their own shells. And we now come to Siv Zayin, again, page 161, the second paragraph, Vihine. We learned that in the, the consciousness of Zacharis Ashrasalach HaMalek, there are two stages. There's where the person does his own work of remembering Amalek and blotting out Amalek. That's what a person does. And then there's Hashem wiping out Amalek. We have the two psukim, right? Hashem says, Machai Timcha, you should do it, and Machai Emcha, I will do it. He says the person needs to create boundaries. The person has to be aware. The ultimate transformation of it comes through Hashem. So now we go further. Zayin. In addition to the wiping out of Amalek that comes from Hashem, following the wiping out, the deleting Amalek that comes through a person's inner work, there's also another element in the elimination of Amalek that happens through Hashem, and it's triggered, it's aroused by the Jewish people, even when Amalek is in full intensity and ferocious strength which as we learned earlier in the Maimer, it's extremely difficult to tackle the Rasha at that moment when God is giving him success. But nonetheless, there is another dimension here, and on the contrary, this comes precisely when Amalek is in his strongest form and fashion. For Yuvon, what does this mean? This will be explained. Based on explanation of the Mittler Rebbe, Admurhem Tsai is the Mittler Rebbe, he was the son of the Baal Hatanya. The Baal Hatanya, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, is the founder of Chabad Chsidis. He passed away the 24th of Tevis, Tovkov Ayin Gimel, 1812. He was running away from Napoleon and he was in Ukraine. He went from Belarus to the Ukraine and he passed away in a place called Piena, a little village. He was buried in Hadit, that's in the Paltava. Paltava Gubernia, that section of Ukraine, <clears throat> southeast Ukraine. His son was his successor. He's known as the Middle Rebbe, the Middle Rebbe. His name was Rabbeinu Doiv Ber. Tovkov Pei Gimel would be 1823. That's around 10 years after the, his father passed away. Tovkov Ayin Gimel. So Purim, that year, the Middle Rebbe said a Maimer. It's a very long maimer. The Mithra Rebbe used to say very long maimer, much longer than his father. Explain them. And Allah, me yusad maimer de la'el. On this maimer of the Mithra Rebbe of Purim, 18, I said 18, 1823, 1823, Tovkov Pei is based the previous maimer. As I mentioned, at this Purim Fabreng, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said two maimer, two Hasidic discourses. One began with the words Chayev Inish Lebesumi Bepurai. A person is supposed to become intoxicated on Purim Adulayada. That was earlier in the Fabrengen. The second Maimah was this Maimah. So this first Maimah, he says, the Maimah is based on the Maimah of the Mithla Rebbe. And that's what he wants to bring in one point. How Haman, who comes from Amalek, was defeated during the Feast of Wine that Esther made. Now, 
I want to remind you the story so we'll be able to understand context. And this is a big problem that the commentators struggle with in the story of the Megillah that we're going to read tonight and tomorrow, Be'ezer Hashem. What happens? Esther is the queen of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus issues forth a decree allowing Haman to execute his genocidal plans against the Jewish people. And in that plan, there is a decree that on the 13th of Adar, every last Jew could be slain and murdered and should be murdered by the king's troops and by anyone living in the country. And by the way, you can plunder all their booty, which means you go into a Jewish house, you could take whatever they own, which is an amazing, incredible motivation for anti-Semites, as we have seen during the Holocaust, that the fact that the Nazis allowed the Ukrainians and the Lithuanians and the Poles and the Hungarians to loot Jewish property was an extra motivation to kill them because you also get the house and you get assets and you take clothes and you take pay- well, you take whatever you want besides, of course, the most prized items which the Germans made sure to take to them for themselves, like the expensive art, etc. Now, that's why the Megillah adds Ushlalam Lavais. Don't take these two words for granted. Ushlalam Lavais. You can loot and plunder all their property. That was an extra motivation. Now, what happens? Mordechai sends a message to Esther, the first lady, and says, please, go into your husband and plead with him to annul the decree. Esther says, I can't. He can execute me because he never gave me permission to come, and you can't just go in uninvited. Mordechai inspires her to take the risk, and she does. And she goes in, and the king is extremely generous and kind and charming and benevolent, and he says, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want until half of my kingdom. Amazing. Now, right there, right then, Esther should have said, what do I want? I want to be saved. I want my people to be saved. That's what Mordechai said she should do. She didn't. She took now things into her own hands. <laughs> this is when Esther turns from a passive, reserved woman into a powerhouse, she calls the shots. First she does everything that Mordechai says. At this point, she's telling everybody else what to do, including Mordechai. <laughs> it's an interesting transformation that happens in the Megillah. The first four chapters, at the end of the fourth chapter, Esther is a new person. She's reborn, which I discussed in the Metzai Shabbos speech. You may have heard at the banquet of a yeshiva about Esther's transformation. In any case, what happens? Instead of telling Achashverosh what's going on, she says, please come to a party. Let the king and Haman today come to the feast that I made. And the king says, sure. And he and Haman come to the feast. It's a great party and they're drunk and they're they're inebriated and having a great time. The king is on a high. Haman is on a high. Esther looks like she's on a high. She's going to be. And then Achshverosh tells Esther, what do you want now? No. What would you expect? Spill the beans. Spill the beans. Tell him. My whole nation is being decimated. Please help me. Even if you would sell us as slaves, at least you would make some money. You're killing us. There's, no, there's, there's not, nothing good coming out of this. Just dead Jews. And a, and a king who's going to be broke. That's what you would expect to happen. It's not what happens. He says, what do you want, Esther? She says, 
come to another party. <laughs> if the king and the Haman could come to the party that I'm going to make for them tomorrow. And he says, sure, it's no problem. No problem. And of course, we know that night he can't sleep. And Mardukai gets rewarded. The next day, there's a party. At the next party, that's when she spills the beans. And Haman loses it. And Haman falls on the bed to plead for his life. Achashverosh goes out to the garden to get some fresh air. He comes back, he sees Haman on the bed. You want to conquer the queen with me in the house? The face of Haman is completely decomposed. And that's when one of the advisors suggests that Haman be hung on the gallows, on the tree that he prepared to hang Mordechai on. And the rest is history. It's actually not history, it's her story. Okay. The big question is, why didn't Esther spill the beans at the first party? The king was drunk. Mela, when she came to him the first time with the scepter, holding onto the scepter, touching the... You could say it was very formal. She wanted the king to be under the influence of alcohol, I understand. But at the first party, you could have already said everything. She didn't. She waited for a second party. And at the second party, that's when she pointed her finger to Haman and accused him, Jacques, of genocide towards her and towards her whole people, and she was successful. What was Esther thinking? She had a strategy. This was, was a very smart, resourceful, brilliant, as it turns out, confident, profound woman. What exactly was she thinking? So the Rebbe here, based on the mind of the Mittler Rebbe, makes an ingenious observation. And he says, and I, today, when tonight, when you learn the Megillah, or now, you'll look at it, listen to it, and you'll see how one word captures the story. What, what's, what is it? So let's see. Three lines from the beginning of the paragraph. After the, Esther says, let the king and Haman come today to the feast that I prepared for him, for his majesty. At that party, at that party, this is all chapter five of the Megillah. At that party, she says, Again, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'm going to make tomorrow. The difference is, listen to this difference. I don't know if you noticed. it. The first time around, listen to her words, it's one word. The first time she says, Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I made for him. Who's him? For the king. The focus here is, I prepared a party for his majesty, for the monarch, for the Persian monarch Achashverosh. Let the king and Haman come to the Mishtash Loi. At that feast, she comes to the king and says, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I prepared Lahem for them. Not Loi, Lahem. A difference of one letter. Loi is Lamed Vav, Lahem is Lamed Hey, Mem. What's the difference? The first time around, 
the feast is for the king. Haman is coming as someone who's tuffle, as an accessory, as a prime minister, as someone who's subservient to the king. He's a guest who's being invited to join the feast that the queen made for the king. That's the first time around. The second time around, it changes. Esther says, the feast that I made for them. It's not just a feast for Ahasuerus. It's also a feast for Haman. Suddenly, Haman was elevated. He's on par with the king. From Esther's perspective, he's on the same level. This is what destroyed Haman. This is where Achashverosh lost the plot. This type of glory that was given to Haman, the king couldn't contain and it drove him mad and it made him suspicious and it made him paranoid. And at this point it was him or Haman. This is what allowed the earth to become so, the situation to become so fertile for Haman to defeat to be defeated. Let me explain what this means. You see, Esther was not just a great woman, she was also a brilliant, brilliant psychologist. And she knew people very well. And she understood that Achashverosh is feeding off Haman, because Haman is feeding Achashverosh's paranoia. That's why if you go into the king uninvited, you get killed. There was this constant fear in the palace that somebody's going to kill the king. And Bixen Viserish indeed tried to assassinate them. And Haman was the one who fed this paranoia. I discussed this at length. If you go to the yeshiva.net in Purim, we have a class there called Achashverish and Haman in Therapy. We did this at length, this whole mimer at length, showing how Esther understood the characters of Achashverish and Haman. Now, remember, Achashverish lost a wife. Of Ashti. He had her killed. Now, Esther comes and invites Haman to the party. <laughs> Great. Why is somebody joining a party between a husband and a wife? If you go out with your wife on an anniversary party, right? Your wife says, come, we're going out, but I want another guy to be there. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, Haman, listen, Haman. Haman is close. Haman is our man. Haman is trusted, Right? But she got Haman inside the party. She made her husband's mind. <laughs> the wheel started to turn in his brain. What is going on? And you could be sure at that party, estimate sure to make Haman feel very, very comfortable. Okay, fine. They're drinking. They're having fun. Suddenly, in the middle of the party, after he says, what do you want, Esther? She says, I want you and Haman to come back to the party that I'm making for both of you. It's not loy anymore. It's not Haman is, you know, the, the fifth tire. Haman is, 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 is the fifth wheel. Haman is extra. No! Haman is on par with Achashvesh. And Achashvesh is thinking, O-M-G. What is going on here? What is going on here? Is it possible that Haman and Esther are in cahoots First of all, maybe Haman took a liking to Esther. And Haman lured her into his trap. Haman is a charismatic guy. And maybe Esther likes Haman. Why is, es- why is Haman at every party? She's my wife. Why is there another guy at both parties? Mela, the first party. What about the second party? What's Haman doing there? Why can't we have some private time together? <laughs> right? What is he thinking? 
He's thinking that Esther, you know, Esther likes the company of Haman a little too much. And suddenly from law it became lahem. It's not just a change of a word. It's a change of demeanor, how Esther spoke. Esther now brought Haman right into the bedroom, right into the intimate party. Maybe I, maybe Haman, maybe Achishverosh is thinking, maybe they both want to kill me together. They're in cahoots to kill me. Maybe they don't want to kill me, but they just like each other. Maybe they just like each other. Maybe they want to eliminate me. Do I know? Maybe Haman is going to use Esther against me so he could take over. I don't know. Maybe together they're going to kill me. Maybe something else is going to happen. Look what happened before. I got rid of, you know, <laughs> I got rid of Vashti. It was also Memuchan's influence. Something is happening here that is making Achashverosh crazy. He's extremely worried. Do they two like each other? Did Haman, does Haman want to chop her away from Achashverosh? Does Haman want to use her to kill Achashverosh? What is going on? Achashverosh does not know. But one thing we know, and that is that that night he can't sleep. <laughs> Why can't he sleep? Why can't he sleep? He can't sleep because he's not sure what's happening in his marriage and he's not sure what's happening in his palace. He does not know what's happening. Haman is too close. Esther elevated Haman so much. It's like, what's happening? What's happening here? Do they have some type of relationship? Does Esther love him? Does he love her? Why is he coming to every party? What's happening? What is going on? Maybe, maybe, maybe Haman is afraid that just like Vashti got in between him and Achashverosh, Esther also has too much power. So maybe by Haman putting himself in and getting so close to her and making her like him, he'll be able to figure out a way how to destroy her, how to kill her, so he could now have full control over the king. He doesn't know. Ahasuerus does not know what's happening. What is going on? So at night, he is not sleeping. He is paranoid. Are Esther and Haman up to doing something that is going to cost him dearly? This change of loy to lahem changes everything. This drives the king crazy. And now you have to realize what happened. Now you have to realize what happened. At the second party, Achashvedish didn't sleep a whole night. His wheels are turning. He's going crazy. He's frightened for his life. Remember, he's paranoid on a good day. Forget about Purim. Purim, he's extra paranoid. But he's paranoid on a good day. He's having anxiety, Right? That's why he makes a party for 187 days and drinks. Yeah, even alcoholics don't drink for so long. You could imagine his anxiety. Now suddenly at the second party, she turns to him and says, you know, there's somebody who wants to murder me. He says, who wants to murder you? Haman. Haman is getting close because he wants me dead so that he can have control over you. Haman now falls on the bed and he's with Esther in close physical proximity. Suddenly Achashverosh realizes his closest friend is the most dangerous person in the empire. 
trying to get rid of the queen, just like he got rid of Vashti. And he realizes that Haman, his closest man, is really the man who he cannot trust at all. That's what Esther did. Do you know what that does to a king? (laughs) Haman to Achashverish is what Beria was to Stalin, if you know Russian Bolshevik history. What Beria was to Stalin, Haman was to Achashverish. And some people even say that Beria killed Stalin because he understood that he's next on the list. Stalin died Purim, or got a stroke Purim, or got poisoned Purim, March 1953. Tavshin Yud So what did Esther do? What did Esther do? She didn't come to Ahasuerus and say, Haman is a sick lowlife. No, she picked him up. <laughs> she picked him up. She put him on par with the king. Let's now see how this plays out spiritually. So the Rebbe continues, or maybe by my Harizal. The middle of the Rebbe brings in the Maim what it said, what the Harizal says. Listen to this. What's the acronym? Yavoy begins with a Yud. Hamelech begins with a Hey. Vav Vahaman begins with a Vav. Hayoim begins with a hey. Yud, K, Vav, K. You hear? That Rizal says that the word that Esther said, let the king, let the king, Yavai HaMelech V'Haman Hayoim, let the king and Haman come today to the party, is an acronym of Hashem's name. Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey. V'zesha Vav the Haman who bein Oisius Yud Ke. Yavoy HaMelech Malchus Shaloylam Lehei Acheroyna Hayom Sfiris HaMalchus. Shurei Mezes Hal Esther Knesset Yisrael Moira Al Haliyah the Haman Lies Pchinus Memutza bein HaMelech V'Amalka. B'Loshin Razal bein Aryeh La'aroy Yusa. Wow. Look at this. Tarizal says, Yavay HaMelech is Yud Hey. Yud and Hey. The king in the Megillah is also a metaphor for Hashem. Malkashalem, the king of the world. So you have Yavay HaMelech is Yud Hey. Vahaman is Vav. Hey is Hayoim. Esther is the spouse that represents the Jewish people. Malchus. The king is Hashem. Esther is the last Hey. Femininity, Malchus. Who separates between Yud Hey and the last Hey? The Vav, Haman, the Haman. Esther took Haman and brought him in between the lion and the lioness. <laughs> Why is this the metaphor? The Zoyar says, Woe unto somebody who walks in between the lion and the lioness when they're together. Don't try this at home. And don't try this in Kruger National Park or in another jungle. When the lion and the lioness are together, they're playful, they're intimate, they're connected. And somebody tries to walk in between them to separate and snatch away the lioness from the lion. Oh, it's not going to end nicely. It's not going to end well. So Esther, what did she do? She had Haman come in between the lion and the lioness. That's what happened. There was a party here. It was a moment of of charming intimacy, of connectivity, of romance. So Esther says, Yavay HaMelech V'Haman, 
Suddenly you're all together in this. Haman is on level, on the same level Haman has brought it into the brought it into the intimate inner circle of Achashverosh and Esther, a husband and a wife. She's the one who did it. She brought him in between the lion and the lioness. Yavai Hamelech is Yudhei. Those are the two first letters of Hashem's name. Vavhei are the two last letters. Yudhei is Hashem, the king. The last hey represents Esther, Hayoim. And who's in between? Haman. You see what he's saying? The Vav of Haman interrupts the letters of Yudke and the last hey. In other words, Haman interrupts the relationship between the king and the queen. Between Achashverosh and Esther. That's what she did by the first party. She brought Haman into the inner circle and this already made the king feel very queasy and creepy. Still, Esther knew it's not enough. <laughs> it's good, but it's not enough. Haman has not been elevated and brought up to a place that is so elevated from where he will be able to be pushed down, down the cliff. As the prophet Ayvadya says, When you will soar like an eagle, the eagle is the king of the birds, and you're going to soar higher than all of the birds, way, way up there, from there I will degrade you, says God. So Esther understood, it's not enough to bring Haman up. You got to bring him up to such a tall space. You have to elevate him to such a place, from there he'll be able to be pushed down. It wasn't enough just to bring him between the lion and the lioness. Yavai HaMelech V'Haman Hayoim Let the king and Haman come today Yud Hey Vav Hey V'lachein Chazer Esther Bikshavish Tadla Sheyavai HaMelech V'Haman Elam Mishtasher Eselahem And that's why the first party wasn't sufficient for Esther to spill her beans and plead for her life and accuse Haman of genocide and convince Achashverosh that the greatest threat to him and his monarchy and his throne and his royalty is happening in the palace. It was not enough yet. Esther realized she needs to go to the next level. And what did she do? She asked and she tried and she persuaded the king and she said, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'm going to make for them. In this posse, you don't have the word hayoyim. The first time she said, The second time she said, Because it's tomorrow. Because you only have, You don't have the last day. At the first party, oy, was she a brilliant woman. This time, she says, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'm going to make for them. Yes, the vav here doesn't interrupt the yud hey and the last hey, that's true. But the way that Haman is promoted 
At this moment, ooh, it's kevaldik. And how do we know this? What happens after the first party? Haman comes home. He is so happy. He tells Zeresh, his wife, and he tells all of his friends, he says, when Esther throws a party for her husband, who does she invite? She invites me. And tomorrow, I'm again invited. He got the message. He is on top of the world. There's nobody as powerful as him. Even the queen, she can't have a party with the king. (laughs) She needs him at the party. Wow. This is the ultimate glory that he can experience. This is what he wanted. Haman wanted to be the most powerful person as the prime minister of the king running the show. And indeed, he's now running the show. Even the queen acknowledges that Haman is the one who runs the show. Gavaldik, the king, is also part of Haman. This is what she did at the first party. In addition to bringing him there, now she needed to go to the next level. What was the next level? Making him an equal. He's a chaver. Shalom chaver. He's a friend of the king. Lohem. Suddenly, Haman and the king are on par. And the Rebbe says, Matzav Das There's a point where it platzes, you know? There's a point, they call it the, the puncture point, right? Or the rupture point. There's a rupture. There's a point that the king cannot take it anymore. He is so angry. He is so infuriated. He is so insecure. He's so overwhelmed. Now all the rules break. He plots us. And when Esther saw, you know, you see that moment. It's like that that simmering point. (laughs) The moment that there's going to be the complete rupture. She knows this is the moment. And that's when she says, somebody's trying to murder me. He says, who? She says, Hama. Oh, it's all over. All the torment, all the repression, all the toxicity, all the fear and insecurity and paranoia, all the trauma of Ahasuerus came bursting out. You're going to conquer the Melech, the Malkin, with me in the house. You're going to take her while I'm here. You chutzpinyak. The face of Haman completely loses it. Chafu. Haman becomes like an decomposed, uh, completely helpless. And now the ground is fertile. Charvayna says, why don't we hang him? Great idea. Let's just get rid of Haman and all the problems will go away. At that moment, Esther achieved that the ra, the negativity, should be completely separated from the good because everything ultimately can only live from the king, from Hashem, from Elokuz. At that moment, all the pnimius, anything that was authentic about Haman was taken out. Anything that was good, the nitzutz was extra, extricated. And what happens? The rajas dissolves. Commercial cost of that's what happens. The king said, Tulu, Allah, hang Haman on the tree that he prepared for Mardukhavay was Haman Allah eats. And they hung Haman on the tree. Gavoya Khamishim Amen. How tall was the tree? 
50 amas. 50 amas is almost 100 feet, between 75 and 100 feet. Why do you need such a tall tree? Nobody, Mordechai's height wasn't 70, wasn't 100 feet, and Haman's height wasn't 100 feet. The hint is, the only way you can get rid of Haman is Adalayada. The Gemara says that there are 50 portals of wisdom. Chamishim Shari Bina. Nivru Bailam. Hashem created 50 portals of wisdom. Moshe Rabbeinu acquired 49, and the Maggid says on the last day, Har Nevoi, he went up to Har Nevoi. Nevoi is Nunbai, he acquired the 50th gate of wisdom. But that's all Shari Bina. Yasu Eitz Gavoya Chamishim Ama. The tree is tall, 50 amas. What does it mean it's tall, 50 amas? It represents the Shari Bina. Haman has to be placed on such a tree. Gavoya Chamishimama. You have to go beyond. You have to go beyond the 50 Shari Bina. In other words, spiritually, what does it mean? We all have an inner Haman. The way that I tackle my Haman is Adalayada. I have to go to a place of Layada. Even my Bina, Bina is great, it's understanding, but it's all Yada, it's all a Kais. What is a Kais? A Kais is that everything ultimately needs to get wrapped into my brain. I need to wrap my brain around reality. I need to reduce reality into a cup. Cup as in cup, (laughs) cup ahead, and cup as in a cup, in a Kais, in a goblet. So even though it's a Kais of wine, but as we said, wine becomes vinegar. Because the kais ultimately limits it. It reduces it to finiteness. And whenever I try to reduce infinity into finitude, ultimately wine is going to turn into vinegar. I have to open the kais. That's Adalayad. So Haman, at this point, is so powerful in my life. What does Esther do? She makes him even more powerful. (laughs) By making him even more powerful... Suddenly he loses everything. When he gets brought up even to a higher story, he gets brought up to the roof. He's now the top. He's the eagle. Ooh, from there you can push him down. Precisely from that place. If Haman would have not been elevated to that degree, then Achashvedesh wouldn't become so infuriated with him. But because Haman was elevated to that point, Achashvedesh started to say, whoa, he really has everything. He really owns everything. Suddenly, the ridiculousness of it, the absurdity of it, emerges. Achashverosh suddenly sees who is this Haman that has so much power, and paradoxically, from that space, Haman loses everything. He fell into Esther's trap. Esther was very smart. Haman didn't realize what Esther is creating. Esther created a web. She was feeding her husband's paranoia. She was feeding Haman's narcissism. That's a smart lady. <laughs> you understand? She understood her husband's fears. She understood Haman's traumas. He needs to be a narcissist. Achashverosh needs to be in control and protected. What happens? She fed into both of them. She fed him. She fed them. And the main thing is, she made sure that they butted heads against each other. She brought them both into the boxing arena and she had them now. His narcissism was confronting his paranoia. His paranoia was confronting his narcissism and he got destroyed in the process. Haman completely got destroyed in the process. Why? When he became a friend of the king, when he became too close, 
his evil came out. Once his evil came out, now there was nothing left. The Pneumius was taken out, and there was only Ra. What does this mean in a person's life, the Rebbe says? In a person's life, Haman goes on a tree, as long as I'm in a place of Yada, I can't really get rid of Amalek. Amalek will come into me. Why? Because I am in a, still I'm in a place of triggers. I am in a place of finiteness. Even if I'm in a place of Shabbos. There's still because zekois vizekois. This is wine and this is vinegar, but vinegar comes from wine. Tainug Hamurkov ultimately allows for the klipa to trigger me, and therefore ultimately Haman cannot be extricated from my life. Only when you put Haman Gavoya Hamishimama, you take Haman. What's Haman? You remember? Haman is Hamin Ha'eit, Haman is Eitz Hadas, Yada, and you go beyond Eitz Hadas to Adelah Yada. You take Haman, you bring him up to Adelah Yada, now you take the spark out of Haman and the shells fall away. And every one of us, when it comes to our own inner Haman, Adelah Yada. What does this mean in Avoida? Sometimes we're in a situation like that time, this time, when the Jewish people's arm is not so powerful. Sometimes there were situations in history when the Jewish people were physically powerful that they can go fight Amalek. There comes a time in history the Jewish people don't have the ability to fight Amalek. And that means spiritually they lack that ability. They don't have the spiritual ability to fight Amalek. Because by the Jewish people, the physical and the spiritual work together. When we have the spiritual ability to do something, so then we can physically do it. When we don't have the spiritual ability to do it, ultimately it manifests itself physically as well. So he says the fact that the Jewish people don't have the spiritual ability to achieve the blotting out of Amalek through our own work, which is the precedent, it's the prelude, it's the intro for Hashem to blot out Amalek, the advice is sometimes in my life, I cannot, I don't have the fortitude to get rid of this. But the Eitzah Yehutzah, the advice is, L'oyderes mechiyas ha-molek. B'yoyse b'takvay, A'yde ha-kadosh baruchu, Mitzad goydel ha-yizgabras va-atoykev da-amolek gufa. Sometimes, the way to trigger the destruction of Amolek in his full power, through Hashem, is actually by bringing out the ferocious strength of Amolek following Haman through till the end. Esther wasn't afraid of inviting Haman into the party. Esther wasn't afraid of giving space to Haman because she knew that that space that Haman is getting is ultimately going to choke him. That's the noose around his head. Now this is a very fascinating what this means in healing. What this means. Sometimes the way you get rid of Haman is not you get rid of him. You got to actually bring him in. <laughs> bring him in, come, let's shine all the lights on you, Haman, let's shine all the lights, let's give you all the attention in the world, <laughs> let's see who you are, let's make you, let's give you the most honor and the most glory and the most powerful person, let's make you as big as the king. And suddenly what happens? The futility of Haman emerges, 
the stupidity, the evil, the negativity, the toxicity, the just, get him out of my life. He's too much, too much. You vomit him. How did you vomit him? By bringing him in. There's an expression, my wife uses it, she says, what you resist persists. What you resist persists, meaning those things in your life that you resist, you don't let them come to the fore. They persist. They just persist in a subconscious way. In other words, what I try to force out of my system is going to stay in my system. Sometimes what I have to do is stop forcing it out of your system. Let's see what you are. And here it's even more. It's much deeper than this. Actually, she's shining the light on Haman. She's making Haman much more powerful. She's bringing him into the inner circle. Wow, she's not afraid. She's not afraid. You know why she's not afraid? She's not afraid because she knows that Haman is Haman. Haman is evil. Don't worry, he won't overpower you. So I could shine my light. Emotionally, what this means is, it's very, very serious. I mean... This could be connected to exposure therapy, but it's, I think, connected to a very general theme. And that is, Esther was not afraid to bring Haman to his highest point because she knew from there, there's only one direction. And that is, he's going to go down. What does this mean in my life? So many things I'm afraid to look at. My own traumas, my own Haman, my own Amalek. I just want them to get rid, I want to get rid of them. But what, sometimes they're very powerful. And Esther says, you know what? Let them be powerful. <laughs> invite them in. What does it mean, invite them in? Invite them in doesn't mean give Haman the power of your country. It doesn't mean turn Haman into God. She's inviting Haman in because that's the way for Haman's bubble to be deflated, for Haman's balloon to be punctured. Sometimes when you're not afraid of anything that's going on inside of you, you don't have to repress it, you don't have to amputate it, you don't have to delegitimize it, you don't have to cut it off. You can invite him to all the parties. Here, come. (laughs) You're marrying off your daughter. You're marrying off your son. You're going to a very close friend's wedding. You're in middle involved in a gewaldic, a beautiful project with yourself, your family, your community, and suddenly there's a Haman. And all we want is Haman should not show up at the event. Esther says, no, bring him. Bring him to the party. Bring him to the second party. <laughs> bring him wherever he wants to go. Bring him in. Bring him in. Bring him in. And suddenly, when you don't when you don't squash Haman, when you don't make believe he doesn't exist, let him be there with all of his colors. Let him show off his colors. Let him feel suddenly comfortable. And what's going to happen, as he says, his nakuda is going to come out. There's nothing here. There's nothing here besides shtusim v'havolam narishkaitin. The nitzutz you're going to take out and all of the clippers of Haman are going to fall apart. In that story, it meant that Haman was destroyed. In our story, it means that I can just embrace my oneness, my infinity. This is true individually. It's also true with Klal Yisrael. So 
Sometimes you see by the Jewish people a difficult situation. And here he says in parentheses that it says in Kehelas, the world Hashem put into their heart. This means in the heart of the Jew, you have a reflection of the whole cosmos. Sometimes you ask yourself, what can I do for my brothers and sisters in Ukraine? What can I do for people in the world? What's the connection? I'm just a private person. But look what he says here. The whole planet lives in your heart. So sometimes a shift in my heart, a shift in my consciousness, creates a shift in the consciousness of the universe. Do you imagine what that means? That's what he says. In the Jew, the world is reflected. And in Klal Yisrael, the whole world is reflected. So when you see a situation in the Jewish people, it's a mirror of what's happening in the world. See, sometimes you see a situation where the world and godliness are on equal footing. Just like Haman, he's elevated, he's promoted at the second party to be identical to the king. This is a situation where my Haman and my Achashverish, representing Hashem and the other side, on equal footing. This is a life in which moral relativism Emotional moral relativism. Haman and Achashvedesh suddenly are playing an equal role in my life. Wow. That's sad. So you could think at such a moment, the Jewish people are going to lose it. He says, no. Hashem says, at this moment, I'm not going to look anymore at their situation and say, oh, wow, look where they are. They're in a situation that Haman is so close to Ahasuerus. They don't even differentiate between them. Adeloyada in a negative sense. I'm not going to say, oh, at such a moment, that's it, I'm finished with them. That's the moment the Yeshua happens. When Amalek becomes so powerful and Haman becomes so powerful, paradoxically God says, this is the moment where we have to extricate them. It's not a situation where you give up on them. Sometimes you see somebody you love and their Haman becomes equal to Ahasuerus. You want to run away. Forget it. There's no hope. No. Precisely this is the moment where Haman becomes so powerful that Haman actually loses the plot. This is the moment where there's fertility for tremendous salvation and rescue. This is the moment the Jews are saved. This moment when Haman reaches his highest point of success. Kedivri Hanavi, as the Navi says, Yecheskel Hanavi, Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the Haftar of Parshas Porah. Hashem, Hashem said, I'm not doing this only for you. You're mine for my holy name. I have compassion for my name. I'm going to sanctify my name that has been desecrated by the nations. Sometimes he speaks of there about a situation where Jews say, we want to assimilate. So we just want to be a regular nation, a member of the United Nations without any unique status. And the Jewish people say, that's it, we're done. Haman is as good as a Hashverish. We're fine with both of them. So Hashem says at that moment, you have to remember that you are me and I'm you. <laughs> and I'm going to... The Jewish people ultimately are a divine people. And therefore Hashem says, despite everything, ultimately you are going to be redeemed. You're going to be emancipated. You're going to be liberated. This means in a person's life sometimes... 
you look at yourself or you look at the Jewish people and they seem like in such a lowly state, Haman is already at the party. This is precisely when salvation happens. It's precisely when the Klippa is sometimes in its fullest strength. Haman is brought to the highest point and this the king can't take anymore. And this situation gets spit out. And this brings immediately that Hashem says, I'm going to blot out Amalek. And when is this going to happen fully? When Mashiach comes. In the most revealed sense. When Mashiach is revealed fully. Because we said before, in the blotting out of Amalek, there are stages. There's a stage of Geula consciousness, but you don't have the full manifestation of Mashiach. It's still the level of Shabbos, and therefore it's Tainug HaMorkav, and therefore you still have Amalek. But then there's Gilead HaMashiach B'miluyah, when the consciousness, the revelation of Mashiach and Giyula is fully manifested, completely, in the most visceral sense throughout the entire people and the entire world, that's when there's Tainug HaPashet. made this happen below 10 cubits, meaning in our own domain, in our own very world, Ba'agala Didan, speedily in our time, in our milieu, in our era, Amen. Now before I, uh, before we uh, we say goodbye to each other, at least for a few minutes, I want to share with you a little story to give perspective to this mimer. Um, those of you who have been learning chassidus with us for many years, and those of you who have earlier experience with learning chassidus, know generally that there's different types of mimerim. There was somebody who came Shabbos to Shul, and he told me that this Maimer that we're learning, he feels that it's a different type of Maimer than other Maimara. In his words, he feels like this Ruach HaKodesh, this divine inspiration that flows through this Maimer. The way it handles reality, the advice it gives, the perspectives it brings out. There's like a certain hisgalos, there's a certain revelation in this Maimer that you don't have. He's told me another Maimara. So I don't even think he could guess how on target he was. And here I'm going to tell you a story that happened at this Fabreng in Purim 1957. I mentioned a few times that the Lubavitcher Rebbe at his Fabrengans, most of the time there were Sichas. Sichas were talks about different sugyas and inyanim, it could be halacha, it could be Gemara, Kabbalah, Rashi, Rambam, Nigla, Pilpul, Chsidis, current events, Chinuch, Eretz Yisrael, Hashkafa, psychology, Avoida issues, issues connected to Jewish history, to the past, to the present, to the future. It could be Parsha Sashavua, it could be Sugis, let's say Purim, connected to Purim. Almost any topic under the sun, somehow connected to the Jews and Judaism. But then every Fabrengin, there was usually also a mimer. The Rebbe would close his eyes. He would wrap a, a, a kerchief around his fingers. They would sing the nigan. Everybody would stand up. And that was dedicated to a sugi and chabad chsidis. Usually every Fabrengin had one mimer. This Fabrengin Purim was very unique. The Rebbe said two maimarim, which was very rare. First, he came into the Fabrengin. He gave a few sikhs extraordinary talks about Jewish history, about anti-Semitism, about Emuna, about the story of Purim. The Rebbe spoke about the Parshish Hashavu, Parshish Shmini, and many other topics. 
And then he motioned they should sing a nigan, they sang a nigan, and he said a mimer, Chayev inish l'besumer b'puraya adalayada, that's the previous mimer in the Fabrengen, and actually my woman's class this week was based on that first mimer. After the mimer, the Rebbe told a story, this is the story I wanted to share with you. The story was as follows. This, remember, this is 1957. So he said, 1957, Tainus Esther was on Thursday, it was an earlier Tainus Esther, and Purim was celebrated on Sunday. So the Rebbe said that in 1936, this is 1957, so 30 years earlier, 31 years earlier, in 1936, Tainus Esther was also Thursday and Purim was Sunday, and my father-in-law, the Rebbe Rayatz, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe says, had a Fabreng, and this is in Poland, 36. And he told a story that in the year Tafresh Ayin Tess, 1919, that's, at, that's the time when the First World War came to an end. It's in the midst of the Bolshevik Revolution. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, ran away from Lubavitch to Rostov, from Belarus to Russia, because of the war. He didn't want to be under the Germans. That year, Tafri Shayantes, 1919, the Rebbe Rashab was fasting. It was Thursday, Tainus Esther, the, the calendar was the same, 1919, 1936, 1957. And after the fast, Thursday night, he says, my father-in-law was walking with his father, the Rebbe Rashab, and he was weak because of the fast. And as they're walking, his father says two words, Dermon Epis, remind me of something. So his son, the Rebbe's father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, meditated, and he began telling his father a story that he remembered from Tafresh Nunvav, that's decades earlier, which was the year before he got married, something that happened after his Tanayim, after his Vart. And it's a story that happened with the Alter Rebbe on Purim Tofkuf Memzayin, which is 1887. And this is the story. That summer, Tafresh Nunvav, that means 1896, the Rebbe Rashab was in the country. And a few times a week, he would travel to his home in Lubavitch. One of these journeys, he traveled with his brother. He had an older brother, Abzalman And he asked his own son, the Rebbe Rayatz, to come on the trip. On the trip, on the journey, was probably on a horse and buggy, the Rashab asks his brother, Abzalman to tell over a story that he once heard from him, that he heard himself from Reb Nochem. Reb Nochem was a son of the Mittler Rebbe, who heard it directly from Reb Pinchas Reises, who was a chassid of the Balatanya, Reb Pinchas Reises. He was there, Purim Tovkov Mem Zayin, 1887, was shortly after the Bar Mitzvah of the Mittler Rebbe. Reb Pinchas Reises was there, he told the story, Purim, 18, Purim 1787 by the Alter Rebbe. So here's how it works, don't get confused. The Alter Rebbe has a chassid, Repinchas Reises. He is there at the Bar Mitzvah of the Alter Rebbe's son. And after the Bar Mitzvah is Purim, Tov Kuf Mem Zayin, 1787, and the Alter Rebbe says something. Years later, Repinchas says it over to the Mittle Rebbe's son, Reb Nachem. Reb Nachem says it over to the Razah, who's the Rebbe Rashab's brother, the Rebbe Marash's son. And he says it over to the Friedike Rebbe, to the Rebbe Rayatz, Tov Reish Nunvav, which is... 1896. Tofresh Ayin Tess, 1919, the Rebbe Rashab is walking with his son. He says, remind me something. And this is what he reminds him. 
So the Rebbe Rayat says it over in 1936 at the Fabrengen. And the Rebbe says this over what he heard from his father-in-law, who heard from his uncle, who heard from Reb Nachem, who heard from Reb Pinchas Reuses, who was there by the Alter Rebbe directly, person to person, the Rebbe says it over at the Fabrengen. What is it? What is the story? What is the story? The story is that Tovkov Mem Zayin, 1787, it was the same thing. Taina Sesta was Thursday, Purim was Sunday. Shabbos, the Alter Rebbe said, And he said, Amalek is the numerical value of Suffolk, of doubt, and of Barzal, and of iron. And Amalek makes a Jew cold. He makes you doubt if Avoida is Avoida. He makes you doubt if your Avoida is an Avoida. Purim, the Alter Rebbe said, A second Maimer, And he was a Maimer dedicated to the idea of the king not sleeping at night, insomnia. And he explored the concept of Oyrein Soif. Oyrein Soif, it's called Oyr, not Shefa. And since it's Oyr, which is a direct continuum of the source, Oyr itself cannot make worlds that are finite, so the Oyr has to go through the Tzimtzum. Beresh is Barelikim. The Oyr needs to go through the Tzimtzum. But the Tzimtzum is Bereshis, Chazal say, Bishvil Yisrael Shenikru Reishis. It's because of the Jewish people that are called Reishis. But when we're asleep, so you don't see the value of the Jewish people. So the king needs to wake up, not fall asleep, and then the world falls back into place. This is the Maimir, the, Rebbe, the, the, the two Maimarim, the Alter Rebbe says, Purim and Tainis Esther, Shabbos and Purim, Tovkuf Memzayin. Says the Rebbe Ayatz, 1936, when I reminded all of this to my father in 1919, what I heard after my Tnoyim and Tofresh Nun Vav, in 1896, what I heard then from the Razov, from Reb Nachum, from Pen Chesreis, from the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab says, if this is the case, and the Rebbe starts crying very heavily, if this is the case, we have to say a new chesedis, not the Maimorim that I prepared, and he said, this Shabbos we're going to be visited by beautiful guests. And the Rebbe starts crying so much, you understand what he means. That when the Rebbe Rashab heard the story, he understood that this was a sign. And this Shabbos is going to be guests, which he probably meant the Neshama of the Alter Rebbe, and the Neshama of the Mittler Rebbe, etc. And he said, this Shabbos we have to say, we have to, not the Maimorim I prepared, but we're going to say, and on Shabbos he said, based on what the Alter Rebbe said, Tovkuf Mem Zayin, and on Purim he said, based on what the Alter Rebbe said, Tovkuf Mem Zayin, and this was all Tofresh Ayin 1919, he continued the Memorium of the Alter Rebbe of 1786. And the Rebbe is saying all of this, and he's crying very heavily, it's extremely emotional. And then he says, that my father-in-law said, that my father told me then, that when a tzaddik is down here in the body and he wants to fix a Jew, so he starts from the bottom. He starts from nefesh, ruach, nesham, and then he goes up to chaya, yechida. But if the tzaddik is in heaven and he wants to fix a Jew, then he starts with yechida, and then he goes to chaya, and then he goes to nesham, and then he goes to ruach. He goes, when the tzaddik is physically alive, he picks up a Jew from the bottom, from the lowest to the highest. But when he's in heaven, he starts off with yechida. He goes from the top, and from yechida, he goes down all the way to the bottom. That's what he does. 
And the Rebbe said, my father-in-law finished the story and he said that we are now in a time, Tafir Tzadik Vav, when there's many bilbulim, there's many things that are confusing us. Whether it's we confuse ourselves or there's things that really confuse us, but the bottom line is that people are very overwhelmed and confused and it's a good taina. So may Hashem remove the justice of this complaint because it's a true complaint. People are overwhelmed that there shouldn't be anything that's confusing and overwhelming and traumatizing in life. And the Rebbe finishes in Tavshin Yud Zayin the words of a tzaddik, the words of my father-in-law, the words of the Rebbe Rashab and all the way to the Alter Rebbe are eternal. That the fact is that today people are also very confused and startled and overwhelmed and traumatized, maybe even more than they were in the past. So certainly the request of a tzaddik that Hashem should remove all these types of complaints that people have because they're true, is certainly now also. And he says, and one of the greatest advices is simcha, because simcha, especially simcha that's infinite, the simcha of Purim Adalayada, removes restrictions and removes uh, restrains and removes things that overwhelm people, and we al- we can experience full expansiveness. Anani b'merch of Yudke and Hashem should erase the name of Amalek. That's the story that the Rebbe said at this Fabrengen after the first Maimer. This long story about 1936, 1919, 1896, 1786. Tafkuf Memzayin, Tafresh Nunvav, Tafresh Ayin Test, Tafresh Sadegvav, Tafshin Yudzayin. It's a story that goes from Tafkuf Memzayin, which is 1786, all the way to 1957. As I said, the Rebbe said it with a lot, a lot of emotions, especially that the Rebbe Rashab said, Ah, we're going to have to say Nuchsidis, and there's going to be special guests for Shabbos. The Fabrengen continued, as the Rebbe's put in Fabrengen, they were always very special and very exciting and incredible, incredibly profound. The Rebbe's Adelayada and Purim would express itself through Torah. At Gagasin and Gagasin and Gagasin. And then, at some point closer to the end, they sang a lot of Nagunim. And then the Rebbe started to say the second Maimer, the unexpected Maimer. And what was it? Zachir Yisashras Malik. The same Maimer that Alter Rebbe said, that the, the same, the beginning that Alter Rebbe said, Shabbos Zohar, Tafkuf Mem Zayin, and the Rebbe Rashab said, Shabbos Zohar, Tafkuf Zayin Tes, the Rebbe started the same beginning. This was a second unexpected Maimer that was not expected, and this is this Maimer that we just learned. It was the second Maimer of the Fabrengen. And indeed, if you read most of the Maimarim, you'll see that they're based on previous Maimarim, meaning the Rebbe will quote a Maimer from the Alter Rebbe, and he'll develop and he'll elaborate it. But this Maimer is unique. It's one of the few Maimarim that in many ways are original, meaning it was a flow straight from the Rebbe. It's not a buildup based on previous sources, and then he elaborates it, but it's more or less an original Maimer. Of course, it's all based on themes and concepts from earlier generations, but the structure of the Maimer, the theme of the Maimer, the main explanation of the Maimer, it's it's an original flow of the Maimer that came out on this Fabrengen of Purim. Okay, so this at least completes one dimension of the Maimer, and I'm going to wish you all a, a very, very uh, uplifting and inspiring and meaningful Purim. As we could see from this Maimer, people think Purim is just a chaotic, wild day, you know, you let the teenagers run amok and do whatever they want. But the truth is that Purim is is maybe, in some days it's 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 the most serious day of the year. <laughs> It's a very, very happy day, but it's also a very serious day because real happiness is seriousness. In other words, there's happiness, there's frivolousness, you know, people just lose it. 
But that's not happiness. Purim is Yom HaKippurim, it's like Yom Kippur. Purim is a very, very deep day. It's a very deep day. And it's the day you see where we're given this ability to open ourselves up at least a little bit to the Pchina of Adelayad. I shouldn't have to be forced into this kais. I should be able to be a conduit. And then I could... Uh, and then I could be there for everybody, and I could be there with everybody, and I can even be there with myself. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.